Well, thank you all for coming. Um, I don't know about you, but a few days ago, I got an email. Thou art invited to Shakespeare's birthday celebration. And it's from an organization in San Diego inviting me to celebrate Shakespeare's 459th birthday, which is happening even as we speak. It's 11 a.m. to 1.30 Pacific time. And they promise ambient live music, a Renaissance dance workshop, a fight choreography demonstration and workshop, a puppet show featuring a scene from Twelfth Night, and for the grand finale, we have a happy birthday sing-along and delicious cupcakes. Bring your family, your, your friends, your cute pets, and of course, your sunscreen. That's California for you. I'm very glad you're here. <laughs> um, before we get on with the program, I just want to say one thing. Two weeks ago, we had a program here called Life Beyond Earth. When and how will it be found? Today, we're talking about Shakespeare. I think the breadth of the conversations here are amazing. Is amazing? You get it. And the reason for this is Dr. Edward Nesessian. And I just wanted to say thank you for him, for his vision and tenacity in our unhurried search for wisdom and his confidence in members of the executive board to pursue our passions and bring them here. So thank you. This is from a recently published book called Making History by Richard Cohn. Between 1500 and 1650, some 12,000 new words entered the English language and half are still in use today. At least 800, a phenomenal percentage, are Shakespeare's personal coinage. Good riddance, puke, queasy, excellent, critical, foul-mouthed are just a few, let alone phrases such as better days, strange bedfellows, or sorry sight. Now here are numbers to make a publisher's heart glad. Based on his plays, Shakespeare had a vocabulary of more than 30,000 words as compared to Milton, who's, who only employs 8,000. Some more numbers. Today, 4,000 new works on Shakespeare are published every year. Cohn points out, this is not the outcome of post 400th anniversary enthusiasm. In 1997, for instance, 4,780 books or articles on Shakespeare were published, 342 on Hamlet alone. So to talk, to talk about the enormity <laughs> of this person, we've assembled a remarkable panel. And raise your hands, please. Carl Cofield is the chair of graduate acting at New York University. He was appointed Associate Artistic Director of the Off-Broadway Award-Winning Classical Theater of Harlem in 2018, where he has directed uh, two New York Times critics' picks, Seize the King and the Bacchae, as well as productions of Antigone 
Macbeth, The Tempest, and Dutchman. His regional credits include King Lear, A Raisin in the Sun, an Afro-futuristic Twelfth Night at Yale Rep, and Henry IV at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. He directed the Princeton Slavery Plays at McCarter Theater, where he has also collaborated with seven distinguished playwrights. Carl's awards include an NAACP Theater Award and an LA Drama Critics Circle Award, and he is also an actor. Jeff Dalvin teaches poetry and poetics at Princeton University, where he was the founding director of Princeton's interdisciplinary doctoral program in the humanities. Jeff has written what he, Jeff has what he describes as an abiding interest in the relations among reading, writing, teaching, and learning. He is the author of three books of criticism, Scenes of Instruction, a study of what poets of the 16th century did and didn't learn from school, Senses of Style, about what you like and what you're like, and the admittedly hasty Take Care, which he claims to have written in 24 hours. He has published essays on Renaissance metrics, the poet Edmund Spencer, and Shakespeare's reading. Jeff is also a poet who serves as an editor-at-large for Cabinet Magazine. David Scott Caston is the George M. Bodman Emeritus Professor of English at Yale University, having previously taught both at both Columbia and Dartmouth Colleges. Among David's book, books are Will to Believe, Shakespeare and Religion, Shakespeare and the Book, Shakespeare After Theory, and Shakespeare and the Shapes of Time. He is currently writing about Shakespeare and Rembrandt in a book that is tentatively titled Reading Paintings and Seeing Plays. David served as general editor of the Arden Shakespeare, the co-editor of the Bantam Shakespeare, and was the series editor of the Barnes and Noble Shakespeare. His scholarly editions include Shakespeare's Henry IV, Part One, Milton's Paradise Lost, and Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. And he has written widely on various aspects of early modern literature and culture. Rodri Lewis, did I say it right? You did. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> was for many years professor of English literature at the University of Oxford and is now senior research scholar and lecturer with rank of professor at Princeton University. His books include Language, Mind, and Nature, Artificial Languages in England from Bacon to Locke, Hamlet and the Vision of Darkness, and the forthcoming Shakespeare's Tragic Art, which is due early in 2024. His interests include literary, cultural, and intellectual history from about 1500 to the present. And while he says that he has tended to concentrate on the first three centuries, at the moment he is working on a biography of Sir Frank Kermode. Rowdry's articles can be found in the Times Literary Supplement, Prospect, and the Los Angeles Review of Books. Sophie McIntosh is a New York-based playwright. Recent productions of Sophie's work include the world premiere of McBitches, 
the college <laughs> premiere of 11 months of nuclear summer at Notre Dame University, and Ipswich in the Boston Theater, uh, Boston Theater Marathon. Sophie's plays have also been developed by Pioneer Theater Company, the 24-hour plays, the Bechdel Group, and Breaking and Entering Theater Collective. Sophie is the co-founder and co-leader, along with Nina Goodhart, of Good Apples Collective, which Sophie describes as a developmental orchard for new theatrical works. Sophie's newest work, City Scrape, will receive its premiere by Good Apples Collective this coming May. Sophie's writing celebrates queer communities, gives voice to women's experiences, and lovingly riffs on the cynical sincerity of young adults. <laughs> the questions about Shakespeare are endless, including, of course, whether or not he actually wrote the plays attributed to him, which I hope we'll discuss, but not just that. But what I'd like to suggest that we start with is if each of you would say something about what Shakespeare means to you. in the order you were introduced. <laughs> well, I, I'll, I'll cannonball in, and, and I have to preface it by saying my um, awakening to Shakespeare, if you will, came later in life. Uh, for a long time, I didn't think Shakespeare spoke to me. Uh, I grew up in the South. I was, uh, you know, a young black man growing up in the South where, um, unfortunately, the gifts that Shakespeare had to posit weren't amplified. But once I did and made the sort of connection where it spoke to me, it unlocked a universe, right? So what it means to me, what Shakespeare means to me is, I'm gonna put it in a little bit of contextual thing. So the Greeks talk about the theater, the etymology of the theater is the seeing place, where we see. And for me, Shakespeare was a clear lens through which to see a universe that up until that time, I didn't realize. So there's a tremendous debt of gratitude. One other, one other, one other uh, uh, contextual thing. I have to posit this in and say, I grew up in the golden age of hip hop. Why is that important? Because many of the, the hip hop masters that we see today are doing what Shakespeare did. And it's a sort of natural extension of that, creating language using language, double entendre, puns, and using witticism to convey messages. So once I was able to make those two connections and say, wow, there is a place for me at this rich table that Shakespeare has created, it removed filters, right? So it removed barriers to entry for me. So when I made that connection, uh, here again to continue to harp on that metaphor, the galaxy really expanded and came into like a 4D vision as opposed to the old black and white TVs. I've dated myself, but yes, the black <laughs> and white TV with the little you know, antenna thing that you had to mess around with. Now it was like completely vivid. Well, um, right after I finished my first book in the bewilderment of, of that condition, having been working on it for a, a decade and not knowing what I was going to do next, not knowing if there was anything in me to do next, 
uh, I got an assignment from David Kasten across the room. <laughs> I have a feeling somebody may have defaulted on the nope. project of editing his, Brilliant his insight on my Hamlet, <laughs> or perhaps I was the very first choice, but however it, however it happened, suddenly uh, I had the opportunity uh, to work with him, edit, uh, edit an edition of Hamlet and prepare an introduction. And I was living up near Columbia at the time, and so I tucked myself away in the library, and I spent three months uh, just reading that play, reading everything I could about that play, but, but most of all, just reading that play and letting it circulate and recirculate in my mind and being absolutely absorbed uh, by its totality and its economy. Uh, and, and that's a lot of what Shakespeare m means to me is the unique capacity of those plays, not just in the time you might watch them on a stage, but the time you spend reading them to engross you and to provide a kind of total world of language. The introduction that I wrote for that play was about the words part and like as they circulated in the mouth of Hamlet and the mouths of so many of the other characters. I became just obsessed. Uh, it was a sort of ideal world, both of kind of emotional and intellectual commitment. So Shakespeare has given that to me, I think, above all. And as I've taught him later on, a greater sense that uh, any one of those plays, any one of those worlds is sort of lodged in a multiply inter and animated constellation world. But perhaps we can talk about that as we go. By the way, that introduction that Jeff wrote is spectacular, and it's in the, if you're interested, it's cheap paperback, Barnes & Noble, Shakespeare series, one of the crazy things <laughs> I've been involved with. And it's Jeff as the brilliant critic he is, but also the brilliant poet he is, and that sense of the play of words that you probably overlooked is really remarkable. Um, I, I have nothing high-minded to say. I, my relationship <laughs> to Shakespeare is all um, from failures in other areas. Uh, I, I wanted to be a basketball player. I wasn't good enough. Um, that, that was my first failure. And then I went to gr graduate school only because it was the one thing I thought I might be able to do reasonably well, but I wanted to work on modern poetry, and I took my first class in graduate school at the University of Chicago, and I remember very, as I started this story, suddenly the nightmare returned, is probably something perfect <laughs> for a psychoanalytic <laughs> session. Um, the very first class, the professor gave out um, a poem by Jared Manley Hopkins, the world is charged with the glory of God. And he pointed at me and said, Mr. Castan, what does charged mean? And I thought for a second, and I said, well, charged, like an electrical charge. He went, no. And then he said, Miss Smith, what does charge mean? And she said, uh, well, uh, like a cavalry unit charging across the hill. No. And he went around the room and asked all of us what charged mean, meant, and we all said something. And to each of them, he said no, and never told us what charge meant. So I decided that working, working in modern poetry was not going to work. And then, actually, I was so unhappy, because this was the only thing I had written at, at Princeton, an undergraduate uh, thesis, that what they were called then, uh, on Edwin Muir, a very minor, obscure Scottish poet from the Orkneys. And it was really, I mean, it was the one thing I was interested in. And I had taken a Shakespeare course from a, Prin a Princeton Shakespearean before these wonderful Princeton Shakespeareans, Alan Downer, who was a frustrated actor. 
and mostly what he did was use the claw. You know, he'd hold his hand like this and portentously say to be or not to be. And it was just horrible. Um, and then I was actually, I'd been admitted to law school in that spring, and I called the law school and said, I think I made a terrible mistake. Could I reactivate my application? And a very nice secretary said, well, certainly. Um, and I said, oh, can I, can I come now? And she said, no, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> you, you can't show up in the middle of the term. And I said, okay. And since I had some kind of scholarship, I just stayed in graduate school. And on the bus, going to the airport, we, someone said, oh, aren't you in the graduate program? And I said, yeah, and I sort of remember you. And I, he said, how was the term? And I said, yeah, fine. Uh, and I said, how was yours? He said, it was great. I took this Shakespeare course. Uh, <laughs> so I filed that away. And then when I had to come back for the next term, because the law school wouldn't have me mid-year, I signed up for a Shakespeare class. And so what Shakespeare means to me, to answer your question, it was uh, escape. It, <laughs> it was compensation for a failed basketball career. Um, and I've always thought of it as the playground. It's, it has, and it, for me, it's an erotic relationship in the sense of what's fun and what feels good, uh, rather than a kind of ethical or high-minded one. Um, and both of you talked about language, and that's really the space for me, too. And we'll talk more about it. By the way, Shakespeare didn't invent all those words. I, I, that oh. I'll talk about later Good. if you Tell want. Tell us about yeah, it. No, Good. that's just wrong. <laughs> uh, that's sentimentality, which dominates so much of Shakespeare. But, but that language is amazing, and it's sort of uh, it's welcoming and absorptive, absorptive um, and it sort of allows you to do so much. And maybe even too much, which is interesting that Milton has so many fewer words. Milton's not nearly as accommodating, but that's for another seminar. <laughs> yeah, I will say, um, similarly to Carl, I um, originally found Shakespeare sort of inaccessible when I was younger. I grew up in the Midwest. Um, and, you know, we learned it in English class, but I didn't really have much of a chance to see it aside from... Um, I have an uncle who is an actor, and I got to see him in... Um, at the Milwaukee Rep, but I was so young when I saw it, I didn't really understand. I actually had to get removed at intermission because I was crying to my mom. I was like, I don't understand what's happening. Why does he have yellow socks? What is going on? Um, and then I really got into it in college. I was assigned as a student dramaturg to Macbeth, um, and I just sort of fell in love with that show. I mean, I think that that is, speaking of accessibility, probably one of the most in terms of, you know, there's... It's on the shorter side, there's a lot of violence, it's more easy to follow, so it did well at our college. And I just really fell in love with the depth of the legacy of it, I think was the biggest thing for me, just sort of the realization that, wow, people have been doing this, saying these exact words for hundreds and hundreds of years, like thousands of people have done this and just sort of inhabited this. And I think that realization is really what made me fall in love with it and get into the idea of it as as a playground, as you said. I just love that aspect of Shakespeare the most, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I know how I got into Shakespeare to begin with, but I mean, to actually answer your question is hard. I mean, the, the curse and the blessing of being a professor of English literature is that you get to work on stuff you love. 
Uh, and so, you know, DT gets overlaid on pleasure uh, in all sorts of weird ways. Um, and I guess one way of unpacking that in my case was that, I mean, for many years, you know, it's part of the job description that, you know, I kind of had to teach Shakespeare. And I loved it and it was enjoyable. But the kinds of things I would do, I was teaching, were the sort of, you know, traditions, the traditions of interpretation, I guess, that had grown up around Shakespeare. And, you know, you could file those under performance criticism, you know, creative reinterpretation, and I guess the history of teaching. And that was all cool and very interesting, but didn't really, didn't really sort of speak to me in a way that uh, made me think I had something new or particularly interesting to contribute. And I remember having a conversation with an old professor of mine in what must have been about 2007, 2008, um, outlining this scenario to him. And he said, so, you know, what are you, what are you waiting for? You should, you should really write the kinds of things in which you're interested. Uh, and so I sort of um, dived back into the language, dived back into the characterization, the sort of collision, if you like, between the sort of vivid characterization and the sometimes puzzling, um, I too have been that child, not understanding <laughs> what's going on, the sometimes puzzling energies um, of the plot. And I suppose what um, interests me now most of all about Shakespeare is the, the sort of facility and the tact and the skill with which he explores what it is to be a sort of human subject who doesn't quite have a story that fits who and what they are and what they're doing. I mean, there's a sort of, you know, one of the lines, I mean, everyone quotes endless lines from Hamlet, but one of the lines everyone quotes most of all is, you know, this above all to thine own self be true, and everyone nods and says, well, that's, that's good, helpful advice we can take home and, you know, make our own and help us improve ourselves. But, you know, it's, it's spoken by a sort of um, elderly, glib, you know, um, fool. Um, and so he's, he's not a straightforward fool, but, you know, he is ultimately a fool. And then you start thinking about the fact that he doesn't really know himself and that nobody else in the play knows themselves either, but have these wonderful, interesting, creative languages um, which they fashion um, for themselves in the attempt to kind of half explore and half hide from that state. And so... I mean, this may say more about me than it does about Shakespeare, but I think it says something about Shakespeare too. Um, this is this is what you know um, um, sort of keeps me um, hacking or has kept me hacking away at him for for a good long while. And I think it's sort of you know when we're talking about Shakespeare for all time or Shakespeare in the present age, yes. um, you know, it fits. Yeah. You you remind me um, there was an article a number of years ago. I think Arnold Weinstein is here. He's at Brown, yeah. and he wrote um, an op-ed piece defending the humanities, and he talked about the wonder of Shakespeare, and he, he described how he said to a colleague uh, who, who was an expert in Shakespeare, how much do you know about Shakespeare? And her answer was, not as much as he knows about me. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that... It was probably Khan's answer. That's a very good answer. <laughs> um, sh should we get the question of authorship out of the way? <laughs> yeah, 
Yes, he wrote the plays. Yes. Okay. He wrote the plays. I mean, you know, we, we, you know, do we have any sort of super duper knockdown evidence? No. We have such an accumulation of data. We do. Uh, yes. Um, okay. Which really, I mean, you know, if you want, you know, if we're thinking in terms of legal proofs, I mean, we are beyond reasonable doubt. Is that scientific knowledge that you know can be demonstrated in the same way that you know the Newtonian motion of the planets can be? No, but it's more than good enough. It seems to me. It's worth remembering, nobody ever suggested someone other than Shakespeare wrote the plays yeah. until 1804. And you think what a kind of massive conspiracy they would yeah. have had yeah. to have been and sustained over yeah. centuries, two centuries, if someone other than Shakespeare wrote the plays. I mean, nobody, it, it, it's just such an uninteresting question. The interesting question is, why do people keep insisting yes. on it? Yeah. Um, and I suspect it is no one ever. So one one thing I would say, and I think the two academics would agree with this, Shakespeare sort of becomes Shakespeare in the middle of the 18th century. He's a very successful writer, but it's not till the middle of the 18th century that he becomes the kind of national poet. And as a function of a war that's going on with France, uh, mm -hmm. it's the battle for control of yeah. the new world that is up up for sale or conquest. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it's like culture always is, a battle. It's a bullet in those, in those wars. And only then did it matter sort of who Shakespeare was. He just was another very successful writer, the best of the playwrights of that generation. But it's worth, I think the title of this session was Shakespeare Forever. It occurred to me as I was reading that, um, 1660, John Evelyn says something like, I went to see a performance of Hamlet, and it reminded me that those old plays um, produced disgust in this, our refined age. I mean, he, he wasn't forever then, but by the middle of the 18th century, suddenly he is the English national poet. He's the reason why the world should be governed by Britain rather than France, <laughs> because he's democratic, uh, myriad-minded, multiple. And then, it, the, only then did it matter who Shakespeare was. And you say, well, how could this Glover's kid from the middle of nowhere write those amazing plays? It has to be somebody who went to university. It has to be somebody who's educated at court. And it's really a function of a culture war that was fought like 150 years later. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Well, how did he amass all that knowledge? Read a lot of books. Actually, but didn't read as many books as yeah. people think he read. I mean, if you read the kind of journals the three of us read, it seems like he read everything. There's a whole journal called Notes and Queries, which is the most boring journal ever, which I've published two pieces in. Um, <laughs> and it's mostly, crazy one. <laughs> it's mostly things like, oh, well, Shakespeare, something in Shakespeare can be found in some 14th century French manuscript. And you're like, how would he have ever seen that? Couldn't possibly have seen that. But he, he's read a few books better than anybody ever read them. I mean, whether, you know, starting with the, the Bible, Plutarch, Collinshed, and a, a lot of prose fiction he read, some poetry, probably Fine. read, certainly saw, acted in a lot of other plays. But he's not a learned playwright. Uh, he's, you know, he, it, what 
I assume it is Kapelikan who said that, uh, Arnold Weinstein, that he knows more about me than I know about him. Um, that, that is, you know, and that's also about the language issue, too. He was a great listener. I mean, that, in Shakespeare in Love, which probably a lot of you saw, there's just, you know, there's great scenes where he just liked listening to other people. And those words just, he, he often, the OED will give him as the first source, the first printed source of a word, but first of all, the OED is almost all printed sources. Second of all, the, they weren't working off a database. There was a bunch of smart Victorians, uh, dutiful Victorians who read literature and theology mainly. And when you actually use more modern databases, you find precursors of almost all of those words. And then the fact that the word appears in print, well, the word was almost certainly spoken before. Right? I mean, it's just a totally unreliable census of trying to figure out where his creativity lies. It's not in inventing words, it's in using them. And, but, and when he does invent them, they're sort of obvious. Like he might very well be the first person who uses the word unkinged. It's a pretty interesting word politically, um, especially if you're thinking of anointed kings. But it's not that hard to get from kinged to unkinged. You know, if you have any idea of how the language works, you can do that. But I also suspect he wasn't the first person to think of that either. There's a moment in, in Henry IV, Part One, when Prince Hal, who's uh, still spending too much time for his father's taste in, in East Chief Tavern, uh, boasts to a friend of his that he can, uh, I think it's, he can drink, uh, spend time with the drawers, with the, uh, the men at the tavern who are drawing the drink, um, drink with any drawer in, for an hour in his own language. Um, yeah. And that this acquisitiveness, this ability to go anywhere, talk to anyone, and find himself speaking their language as well as they speak it, or perhaps even giving it back to them sort of fuller and more imaginatively. That must be some little picture of Shakespeare's social gift. I just want to go back very quickly to the Shakespeare's learning point, because I think it's sort of important to clear it up. I mean, I think David's exactly right. I mean, he's not particularly learned. It's just that he's more than learned enough to give people like us headaches, because we actually have to jump through hoops to keep up with him, because we didn't go through a a sort of 16th century grammar school education where we were drilled in Latin classics and um, so you know, we have to work. But when you look at um, you know, how learned he was or how much stuff he'd read and how obscure it was compared to other poets and playwrights of his time, many of whom didn't go to university, um, there's nothing particularly exceptional. What's exceptional is what he does with it. Um, and, you know, it's very, very atypical there, but... There, there are some very powerful videos out there with, with Derek Jacobi and Mark Rylance insisting that it could not, it could not have been Shakespeare, and, and they, they're very adamant. How, how do you answer them? They're wrong. Yeah, I mean, I've known Mark for a long time. We were on together when the Globe was first being built, and Mark, I mean, the London Globe, and the second London Globe, a rebuilt Globe, a re-rebuilt Globe. Um, and Mark's an old friend, and he's a brilliant actor. And so, a, so why is why is is he so absolutely sure? Oh, it's a kind of intellectual snobbery. I don't know what. To make of it. I mean, just I get it, but I think 
First of all, it doesn't matter. Uh, and second of all, they're wrong. <laughs> People believe all kinds of weird things. Oh, we've noticed. You know, there's a great, I think my favorite thing written about Shakespeare is Stanley Cavell's uh, essay on King Lear, um, which is about the puzzle of why it's not obvious to Lear that Cordelia loves him. It's obvious to everyone who reads the play um, that her, the sort of fierceness of his response to his request for love, her her, her nothing um, is a refusal to play love as a game because she needs it as a bond. Um, but that sort of basic um, argument that uh, Lear's skepticism and disbelief in Cordelia at that moment derives from his difficulty in accepting something that is manifestly, obviously true, I think applies in this case. Okay. It was Shakespeare. So okay. of everyone who doesn't think so, you really have to ask them why. Lie down on the couch for us here. <laughs> okay. uh, because you're, place. you know, this would is it a make real... So we have two yeah. theater professionals here. Would it make yes. any difference to yes. you if the biographical yes. Shakespeare we think didn't write the play? Would it make any difference? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, coming from, I mean, as I said about, like, the legacy of it, I think at this point the thing that has made Shakespeare Shakespeare is, like, where it stands in the cultural consciousness and, like, how like present it is and how often it has been done. So I think that like the legacy it's built is its own of the work, sort of independent of the author at this point in a way. Although you know the Shakespeare brand does do a lot for him. Um. Yeah, and I would add, not to be glib, no, it would. I mean, <laughs> and, and to your point, just listening to it, I wonder if we'll have these sort of uh, mythologies around Coltrane. And these artists who really redefine what they're doing to such an extent that, you know, possibly years down the road, people are like, there's no way Duke Ellington created all of this music, <laughs> you know, to, to your point, I don't know, yeah. to satisfy something <laughs> within us to say there's no way someone else could be that brilliant. But the practical answer is no, it wouldn't, yeah. it, it, at least from a practitioner point of view. What is so beautiful to me, though is the interpretation that it allows. When you say a Mark Rylance doing it, I had the privilege of doing King Lear with Andre de Shields, and putting Andre de Shields' flair on King Lear is something that I, I, I think that Shakespeare would sit back and say, hmm, you know, I, 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 I laid, here again to murder the metaphor some more, I laid a table, but everyone can eat a different sort of thing and take and pluck different things that might, you know, satisfy their appetite. So to me, it, it doesn't matter. It does not matter. It matters in certain, you know, uh, uh, you know, classrooms or certain salons that people can have this sort of discourse. But to me, as a practitioner, that's the beauty of it. The groundlings can get one thing, and the people from court can get another thing, but they all have this shared experience and walk away, hopefully better, and where we are now, able to have a conversation. And I, I think and, that's I, what it and I do think, as you said, that, it, that the commitment to an aristocratic Shakespeare, which is what so many of the people who, den the deniers, uh, election, no, uh, authorial deniers, um, they, they, that, that satisfies something for them. That's not true of Mark, and I don't, don't know Sir Derek, but 
I assume that's probably not. But it is interesting, that's where you want to locate it, and your idea of that big table set for everybody is precisely what that aristocratic intelligence wouldn't offer. And so that becomes, in a way, another kind of evidence that that's wrong. It's awfully hard, other than the fact the Earl of Oxford was dead by the time the late plays of Shakespeare were written. But even without that, it's, it's not the, the temperament, it's not the political imagination, the social imagination that that person would had or that kind of person would likely have. That seems to me just further evidence. And I honestly, Go ahead, I honestly think part of it is a lot of people um, struggle with just the idea that he generated so much material in all of these complex, in-depth plot lines, but he really was just the most magnificent scrounger in the way that he sort of, you know, <laughs> stole these ideas. Like, I remember when I was researching Macbeth in college, like, I was like, oh, he didn't necessarily come up with this. He based it off of this history book that he read that was itself, like, largely fabricated in a lot of ways, right. and he's sort of, like, stealing and interweaving this stuff, but didn't all necessarily spring from the fount of his mind in that way. Now, which gets us back to words. You know, he doesn't invent plots, and he doesn't invent characters. Yeah. <laughs> he, he writes those plots, and he writes those characters differently. And mm -hmm. that's good. Yeah, but just going back to Carl's point about the sort of big tent, I mean, in the preface to the sort of the big collected edition of his work, 1623, so we're in the anniversary year for that yes, now, the big yes. folio, which is not compiled by him, because he's been dead for seven years, but two of his buddies um, are the guys' companies, and they explicitly say this, th these plays are for the most literate sort on this side to those who can but spell. The idea okay. being there's something there for everyone, and you know, Shakespeare, Shakespeare's big fear, I think, is talking down to the groundlings, because you know, he came up himself and, you know, the whole point is that these plays speak to a whole range of different demographics. Um, it always seems interesting to me that, you know, Milton will say explicitly that he writes for a fit audience, though few. And Shakespeare clearly is writing for, you know, not care if they're fit or not, but many. You need bums on seats. It's really simple if you're working in the theater. And it has to, you know, it's so not Miltonic yeah. in the way it functions. Yeah, and, and just to that point, that, that's what excites me the most, right, to go back to the point of uh, uh, borrowing material for inspiration, right? When we look at the Greek amphitheaters that Shakespeare is known to have studied, right, you have the butcher sitting next to the general sitting next to the politician. But they're all there having this experience in the theater. I think that is some of the genius that Shakespeare is able to, to um, weave together so beautifully, that it's not exclusionary, right? That you have to have a certain palette, an artistic palette. But no, you, right. as a citizen, yes. you are entitled to this art. So a, a more populist view, which speaks to me, you know, especially when art now, not to bring it to a 21st century paradigm, but... You know, not everyone has $500 to see the latest hot show. Yeah. And I think there's something really rewarding as a citizen that the artistic value is there for all of us. You can get what you get. This person can get what they get. But the experience is for all of us. So not to bring us to a different tangent, but yeah. I, I, w when we went down that, uh, that hole, I think that's one of the other geniuses of Shakespeare. Yes. Not, a, not a, uh, a personal favorite of mine is when I'm working with actors about actually performing Shakespeare. It's one of the times when the three elements of Shakespearean acting work the best for me, Mark Rylance and 
you know, Judy Dench and John Douglas Thompson all are able to embody this. What I call it, the trifecta. So there are moments when I'm talking to myself and really interrogating my thoughts, but there's a moment where I turn to the gods and ask them, how can this be? But then Shakespeare realizes I'm not alone. So I ask the audience members. And so the really savvy actor can marry all three of those and take the audience along on a ride, and we don't know where they are. And that's what makes me lean forward as an audience member to say, at what point are these shifts going to happen, right? So the boring lesser actor or, or, or novice actor would be to be or not to be. <laughs> that is the question, whether it is noble. And so we're removing the audience. Yes. The really savvy actor will say, Engaging the audience. That's the question. Is it right, right, right? So we have this beautiful give and take where even alone at my home when I read the work, there's an element missing. Don't have the audience with me. So that's a, a different, a more that's, matter for a, what is it, more matter for May? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's worth worth the saying in relation to that, that, that obviously he, he, did, he did read books he read. Yes. It sounds strange. But if you if you find a book on stage in Shakespeare, it's generally speaking an object of some skepticism or suspicion. Enter Hamlet reading book. What is Hamlet reading? Everyone is anxious about that Hamlet. Or the Tempest. Shakespeare's plays that Shakespeare trusts. Which mm. <laughs> also makes me suspicious of the arguments you guys will know about whether Shakespeare imagined himself as a literary writer, writing for readers. And I think no. I mean, he, you know, for his two long, two poems, long narrative poems he writes early in his career. He dedicates them. I mean, he, they are literary, and he, there's no evidence that any publication of Shakespeare did he see it through the press. Um, and actually, and the scripts didn't belong to him anyway. They belonged to the acting company. Hmm. What is it like to to reimagine Shakespeare? Like bitches. <laughs> Tell us about that. Oh boy. I mean, it was definitely had a lot to do with my experience in college of sort of encountering this world and sort of finding my way into it through that process. Um, because I really, when I was first sort of encountering Shakespeare, I was like, I don't know if this is for me. I don't know if, um, I mean, there just are so few in, in, you know, in Macbeth when we did it, you know, there's really Lady Macbeth and then like one other female character, um, like her, her night woman, her attendant. And then like, you know, we gender bent some of the things, we do some of that. But I was like, I don't know if I'm going to like this. There's all these, there's all these men and there's none and it's written in this heightened way. And then like finding my way into it was through the way the director interpreted it, the way he was like, you know, like we're going to make these character women and it's going to have connotations, you know on just the world of the play, but also, you know, like what it meant when it was written and like the way we cast it and the way we interpret it is just so rich and vivid. And I really feel that, um, 
know, something about Shakespeare, perhaps because of its legacy, because of just how often it's been done, really lends itself to being interpreted in all these radical, fantastic ways. Like, I think people feel like they have permission to just, like, completely mess around with and mess up Shakespeare in a way that they it don't. take it. Yeah, yeah, in a lot of other ways. And the text is so rich in nuance that you can find new variations, new secrets, new interpretations, new meanings to the words, depending on, you know, who is playing who and what they're doing and whether you're doing it in outer space. Or I do have a friend who's in outer space, Romeo and Juliet in Boston right now. And um, I just love that because you just don't see that as much aside from, you know, with like the Greek classics in, in the, I mean, you know, obviously theater is interpreted in lots of different ways, but I think that Shakespeare, people just love to get messy with it in a way that Did I really, really enjoy. you get from purists? Oh my gosh, with, with this play? With, with any play that you mess with, an, an Afrocentric <laughs> Twelfth Night, how did that go? Yeah, it won't be for everyone, and I don't think art should be, you know, uh, I make the, the theater that the 13-year-old version of myself wants to go to. <laughs> <laughs> um, because with Netflix and Amazon Prime, why would I leave my home when I can dial up whatever entertainment I want right there? So it has to speak to me organically, and so to, you know, couple off that, here again, I think the, the playground is so rich and so the elasticity of the text, right? We've all been brought up in an era where the teaching method of Shakespeare is the text is so robust it can stand up to anything. And if you're dramaturgically sound, right, you can put Romeo and Juliet in outer space. And so I, of course, being the troublemaker that I was, wanted to test that theory and to push those bounds. So for me, the world of Illyria, all we know is a woman is basically baptized out of the sea. When we first see her, she is anew, basically. And so Shakespeare tells us that the world of Illyria, the currency is wit and music. And if you can have those two things, you can enter and go as you please, a la uh, you know, festive. What could be better than that? So from those, I sort of, you know, said, what would the 13-year-old version like to see? The musical score that we created is definitely not like anything with the, <laughs> the table and the, you know, it was what the kids are listening to today. Really? So Festy has a beat machine on him, and he can use auto-tune. And so I, I think it was, it was successful, and especially with actors like Carrie Young, playing Viola, um, right. you're set up for, for success, but... But Shakespeare was always played cut, was always played revised, was always played reset, was always played in different playing spaces. I mean, it has been always less. I mean, but, I, but let me ask the, the academics here, for example. Um, Iris Murdoch once said that uh, she created a list of books that an, educa an educated person should have read and she includes all of Shakespeare. Presumably, she's talking about the the original texts. Is is playing off it premised on knowing the on 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 doing the original text? In other words, you can't do jazz until you've studied classical music, something like well, that. Well, one there are no original texts. I mean, that's, that's really the truth. Right? We only have edited texts that somehow came into print in ways we well, don't Well, I'm saying the more... Yeah. The but, but, I, but I think it's interesting that there's no real there there that, you know, what 
you know, Iris Murdoch is obviously brilliant in all kinds of ways. Um, and she writes badly. Um, you know, but it's a, it, you know, it's a kind of fantasy. I mean, Shakespeare plays a role in Western culture that is remarkable, and your, your point. I mean, there's no escaping from that. I mean, if nothing else, he's what everybody read. It doesn't matter who that ever... Duke Ellington loved Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. Duke Ellington loved Shakespeare. His annotated copy of his edition is in New York Public Library, which is quite... I don't know if you've ever looked at it, but it's really amazing. Uh, you know, he, he... Whatever he means, those texts in whatever form you've engaged them, but there's, there no, there's no original there. So half the texts come from scripts that were in the theater, 18 of them were in the, of the, in the folio texts, and those the, theatrical scripts have already been cut, revised in different ways, maybe by him, maybe by somebody else. Uh, actors' interpolations have been included or not. Um, and then the ones that are, were printed before, mo uh, a, lot, they're, they're, a lot of them exist in variant copies. It's too boring to discuss. But, you know, there's, there's just not uh, an original text there. They're early texts, but they show exactly what you two are talking about. It yeah, I mean, existed in a theatrical world that responds to the exigencies of theater. And that encounter with the, um, with the texts, even the classroom, um, is in, you know, a, a, a fecund, contradictory relationship uh, to what it's like to reimagine them, to put them on the stage. I had a great, um, I think, uh, probably Dave and Roger, and no, A.D. Nuttall, who was an old Shakespearean, at, uh, and, and maybe you guys too, writes amazingly about uh, about Shakespeare, Shakespeare the Thinker. I had a class with him um, in which he sent us home with a passage from Othello uh, to do a scholarly annotation of some very tricky lines. And it's the, it's the moment when Othello has just accepted the commission um, to go to Cyprus to fight the Turks. And it's also, you know, at stake that he's just been married to Desdemona. Um, and the Venetians need him, but there are many who disapprove of this marriage. Uh, his situation is tense. Desdemona says, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to stay here in Venice while you go, particularly on my wedding night. Ahem. Uh, and Othello says, you know, very well, I'll, you know, I think she should go, nor to comply with heat the young effects of my defunct and proper satisfaction. <laughs> Which means what exactly? And so we went home and we did, you know, we, we did uh, elaborate glosses of this um, and brought them back for Professor Nuttall's approval and variously kind of untangled it in front of him. It probably means something like, um, I'll bring her, but I'm not bringing her to comply with heat, to comply with passion which is my defunct satisfaction, I put it aside as a man of war, but it's proper because she is my wife. Very intricate little construction, we worked it all out. But how do you get this across on stage? And at some point, not all tips back and says, isn't, you know, isn't Othello such a commanding orator in some, so many other circumstances? Isn't he confused or isn't he thinking too fast for his audience? Isn't this, remember, a dramatic situation? in which enormous emotional pressure is concentrated on this figure. And then, you know, the gloss just shatters as a project and you're, you know, you're back in the theater. Uh, but you don't, you don't, I think, get to that reading of that scene without having put yourself 
to the test of the text. So they, they are always fighting each other. Okay. To that, it kind of reminds me of, um, I know, I think that like, and I say this as someone who grew up with not a lot of access to being able to go see live plays and who did read a lot of plays, um, but also as a playwright, that plays are written to be, you know, seen on stage and perhaps not necessarily read, especially by people who don't make a habit out of reading plays. So I know, um, I don't know, I feel like a lot of kids all across America are sort of thrown to the deep end when the teacher like mm -hmm. gives them the Shakespeare text and they say, read this and understand it. And they don't really know how to read a play. They don't really have the tools, you know, like this is what happens between the lines and the white space. These Mark, are like King of Scotland. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think one of like the best things that my uh, my English teacher did when I was in high school is one day she we were reading um, Hamlet and she brought in paper crowns and she said, you know, we're going to read this in the classroom together. Like we are going to like perform it together. And I think that was the first time it really made sense to me was doing it and speaking it out loud and being like, oh my God, like this is what the innuendo is. Like this is how it lives outside of the page. And that really activated it for me in that way. Yeah. One of the things that's been fun for, for me being in New York and around New York for most of my career was working with theater companies. So. You know, John Douglas Thompson's an old friend, and we've done stuff at Theater for a New Audience together. And one of the things that a lot of directors will do is, like early in the, the rehearsal, they would, they would ask me to come in and just talk with the actors about the play. And what was interesting to me is I would come in and you know, say, we'll be there for three or four hours, and, and I would talk to them a little bit what I thought, and then I'd ask questions, you know, I'd open it to questions. And I'd say 50% of the actors were interested in everything I knew about the play. The other 50% of the actors couldn't have cared less what I knew about the play, that their way into the character was so different than, you know, and I wish I could say that the first 50% were better actors, but it wasn't true. <laughs> I mean, they're just, you know, the, the theater works on a different e ecology somehow. And for some people, the stuff you know, we know, was really interesting and helped them think about the character. And for others, it was you know, maybe interesting, usually not, and irrelevant <laughs> to the way they formed a sense of what, what's happening at stage. And your point, the white spaces on the page, the silences on the stage, yes. what the, what's going on that when the, person, the people who are not talking, you know, we're not good at talking about those things. You guys are good about those yes. things. You know? yes. and, and Apropos that, for you too, I was I was so interested to learn um, how pragmatic Shakespeare was. That that when he knew someone had to circle around the back of the stage or do something, that it wasn't all flowery and and beautiful and pointed. That that there was a certain amount of of filling in so that people people could move around. That there were logistical motives to some of the things. That he wrote, and I think that's. And I'm a, sure that shows up in the text, right? Where, where an actor will say in production, that just won't work, mm -hmm. and so then it gets rewritten yes. because yes. he says, "Oh, you're right." Yes. And I, that that seems to me, you know, he's a practical. Whatever else he is, he's a practical yes. theater. You know, he's an actor. He's a part owner of the company. He wants these things to succeed, and he and he knows that they're going to change, in in the in probably every night of doing the play in, say, six months is going to be, di it's different. They didn't yes. do long runs of things. But then three years later, when you're pulling out of the repertory, you add some lines to make it 
current. I mean, you know, fetishizing. There's the psychoanalytic question. You know, like <laughs> why, why has he become? Marge Garber has a wonderful line, and she says, uh, she starts with the relationship between Shakespeare as fetish and Shakespeare as phallus. And I thought it's, you know, oh, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> but, but Raffi, did you want to? Yeah, I mean, I want to circle back to the um, Iris Murdoch thing um, you mentioned. Um, and, I, and I agree with everything everyone's been saying here, because obviously the texts themselves that we think of as being stable and authorially centered and such are not really. It's much more complicated than that. Um, but there's so many sort of but, but, buts that come along from that, because when we think about theatrical tradition, um, what we actually mean is a series of attempts to give life to a printed text. Um, so the relationship is always much more sort of, you know, um, mutually implicatory, so to speak, than, than, than pure theatrical tradition having license to go wherever it might be. So yes, I do think, I do think it's not a question of um, either or, but sort of both and. I mean, one can and one should, I think, read these texts, but reading is not supposed to be a sort of singular act here. And I mean, I was just thinking, it pops into my head listening to David just now as a there's a famous essay by uh, Vladimir Nabokov um, called, um, what's it called? It's called um, Good Readers and Good Writers, I think. Uh, um, and he has a little riff there. We have many little riffs there. <laughs> but he has one little riff on the difference between um, visual arts, sculpture, and painting, and arts that take place across a period of time, such as novels or drama. And when you walk up to a sculpture or a painting, you can instantly take in what's going on. Um, I mean, maybe not everything, but you get a sense of what's in fact happening. Uh, um, whereas when you read a novel or go to a play, you actually have to wait until the end yes. to actually sort of figure out what the artistic form is here, in a sense. And so his point is always that there's no such thing as intelligent rereading as any intelligent rereading, uh, um, because you have to be coming back when you've decided what the whole shape is, because art that takes place in time is different from art that happens in one place, um, as it were. And I wonder whether you know, we don't make a little bit too much of the stage page um, um, theatrical tradition, bookish tradition thing. I mean, both, it seems to me, are interesting for, yes. the, for the same reason, which is that they are art forms that require us mm -hmm. to, as it were, finish them the first time, when we haven't quite worked out who that funny fame is. Um, which one was he married to again? Oh, <laughs> why is he with the English guy? Uh, um, or, or whatever it might be. That's uh, always the question. Yeah, isn't it? Uh, um, and um, yeah, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of, I, I, I suppose I'm just saying that I, I, I'm speaking up a little bit for the book. Okay. And the printed Shakespeare. And, and speaking of the book, I, yeah. I wanted to ask you, you wrote, um, is it fair to say a controversial book about I, Hamlet? And, and that on, was almost universally admired, apart from those who really hated it. It was it was it was 2017, and um, um, it it was a little. It was sort of against the grain, and I wondered what you've done with that. Has it has it has the has it changed your mind? Has it strengthened your resolve about what you <laughs> believe in Hamlet? Um, it certainly, I'm afraid, hasn't changed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I mean, I suppose. I mean, I, you, I wrote you might. I mean, don't give us the whole book. Yeah. But yeah, if, exactly. you briefly, so, <laughs> if you can briefly, if you can briefly tell us. I wrote a book called Hamlet and the Vision of Darkness, and 
Um, Hamlet, I mean, in a sense, was we, David's talked about um, Shakespeare becoming alive, newly alive in the 18th century. Um, and he mentioned lots about um, the sort of English or anti-French tradition. Another side of that was the Germans, who also, German romantics and idealists, who also wanted somebody who wasn't French. Um, so Shakespeare is the guy. And Hamlet seems to be the, the guy who dramatizes, the character who dramatizes the dilemmas of the modern life, um, who's unable to choose between competing impulses within himself. And he's therefore, paradoxically, because he's royal, uh, um, a sort of everyman figure. And you know, we've all, those of us who've been to Hamlet in the theater, which is probably most of us, um, or read Hamlet, we've all read Hamlet in, in, the, in the printed page. We've all thought something like that, you know, particularly if you've, like me, been a teenage boy in your time. Uh, um, you, 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 you identify in some way or another. Uh, um, there'd been a lot of pushback against that in the sort of uh, um, 1990s and early 2000s, culminating in a brilliant book by a colleague from the University of Pennsylvania, Margaret de Grazia, which she wonderfully titled Hamlet Without Hamlet. Actually, the play is a play about inheritance and land. The, the, the moody teenager is, is, is a sideshow. We shouldn't be fixating ourselves on that. And I wanted to find a way of bringing, bringing those two together, because surely character who speaks most in this play um, matters, um, and should matter to us as readers or performers or um, writers about, about the Shakespearean tradition. So anyway, I set off to do that um, and ended up writing a book in which I said that Shakespeare was very impatient with both uh, um, sort of humanism, which is to say the educational ideologies of the 16th century, and with religion, and with various other things, and that the, the sorts of truths, small t truths, he believes in are those that can be um, relayed and um, focused upon through works of um, dramatic art, which are intrinsically open-ended open and open to interpretation and such like. And, you know, I sort of think that's right, um, basically, one can argue. Um, and um, argue intelligently that, it's, that I'm wrong in various um, sort of smaller areas, but I think as a, as a broad, broad brush account, that's right. So I have now, um, you didn't ask me to talk about this, but I will. Um, <laughs> I've now just written a big book sort of trying to extend um, the theory of tragedy that's implied in my, what, what, what kind of work the tragedy does that's implied in the Hamlet book across the tragedies as a whole. Um, and I think one of the things I didn't, wasn't able to do, didn't have the space to do in the, in the Hamilton Division of Darkness was to talk about that at greater length. Uh, um, and I hope that by doing so, um, that by explaining um, you know, what I actually take Shakespeare to have been doing, and I, little side note here, I don't think he was some sort of crazy nihilist, um, <laughs> some, you know, Samuel Beckett on a bad day or something. Um, but... Uh, um, um, but people will sort of get a, get a fresher appreciation of the kinds of, um, you know, really powerful work, I think, that Shakespeare can do, not just for, you know, sort of eggheads like me, um, but, you know, um, in the broader sort of, of public, um, yes. dramatic and, and readerly yes. traditions. Yes. So spe speaking of the power of Shakespeare and getting back to your comment about how he became a national hero... In, in the 18th century and, and his importance to all of us. Um, comment on uh, Walter Kaufman's suggestion that Shakespeare celebrates the riches of the world without God. 
Um, can we replace? <laughs> yeah, I think I mean, it's the wrong question. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, Tell me the right question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it celebrates the riches of a world in which religious, Irrespective. religious belief is a real thing. Um, but a conflicted thing that does not, for Shakespeare's, okay. not me talking, um, offer the kinds of fulfillment that believers hope it will. Um, he supplements God. I mean, I think what happens is you know, Dryden's the first person who ever refers to Shakespeare as divine. And then, so there's a line from Dryden to Harold Bloom um, talking about Shakespeare as secular scripture or something like that. And it's metaphor. If it means something reasonable, it means, yes, he's very important in our culture in the way you were saying. We don't know anything about what Shakespeare believes, um, but as Rodri says, he lived in a world where religion was everywhere. And in the language, you say goodbye. Well, that's God be with you, right? You can't get away from it. You know, God bless you, said the atheist. Um, it's just in the language. The whole culture is sutured by religion. It's not a world without, without God. What Shakespeare thought about God, you don't know. I mean, uh, you know, what Rembrandt thinks about God is more visible in some in some way. Um, but I, you know, I, it just does seem to me the the wrong wrong question. Okay. Taken. Also, I will say, Walter Kaufman was a first, the only philosophy course I took at Princeton, <laughs> and he assigned 20 books of which he had written or edited all of them. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe Walter Kaufman was that guy. <laughs> maybe he thought he was. <laughs> <laughs> what else? What else would you like to say about Shakespeare? I, I do. I do think that David's sort of move from thinking about God and Shakespeare to Shakespeare as God is an interesting one with respect to our our authorship question because he does he does occupy a singular position, um, and I think that's it's right that you know for Shakespeare in his plays God was a human problem one of the major human problems and so subject is interested anything and more than more than most questions um Stephen Greenblatt has a line about how Shakespeare's father was both a Protestant and a Catholic uh, and, yes. and and Shakespeare himself is neither uh, and that's probably right but he has uh he has a he has a human interest in God talk and God feeling um the what our culture sort of needs from this figure and needs to hate about this figure often too that is sort of so uh canonically the center of um or the epitome of of artistic achievement is is a really deep challenging and maybe psychoanalytic question um and it's it's one that as a teacher i often try to sort of poke at by getting people to imitate shakespeare see if you can write you know lines if you can write a sonnet see if you can write a new line for and often, often people can can do that pretty well, uh, which is a, a scandalous discovery um, that you can sound like Shakespeare. Um, but there's also uh, a funny way in which I I find myself um, drawn, uh, which um, 
the recognition that there is something sort of extraordinary about this figure has a democratizing consequence. That is, that sort of all of us share this, uh, and all of us share a certain kind of awe with respect yeah. to it. Um, and it can be a skeptical awe. It can be an awe that keeps trying to ask who else might have written this, or what's you know what are the, but that keeps confronting the fact that there's something that stands. There's something that fascinates. Um, I, I that's a, I'm interested in that relationship between his divinity and our democracy. That that's interesting. It brings us to what does Shakespeare? What can? How can Shakespeare help us <laughs> today in this troubled world? <laughs> Carl had a good answer before. <laughs> yes, the the bringing together and the equalizing. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna pound the table for the power of theater, right? I'm gonna pound the table. Because in our world where it's so easy to get siloed in our own things, theater is one of those true places where we can just come together next to our, you know, uh, uh, community members, strangers, even better, and share an experience. And hopefully from that, profound conversations can come. And, you know, here again, I, I go back to the, the seeing, looking versus seeing. So when, when Viola sees Sebastian... Right, those moments of really seeing, it's something that I think we're sorely missing now, but Shakespeare's able to really see. It's able to see. And, you know, Lear is blind. Yes. Right? He cannot see. And I think that is something that I think that I take away from, from uh, uh, Shakespeare. Not only the ability to look and listen, but to hear and see. My wife would say, you know, critical thinking is, is, is sorely lacking now, yes. right? And I believe when we grapple with these texts and let them wash over us, hopefully that's, that's the takeaway for me. Being able to pinpoint Lear's problem. If you just really saw your daughter and were able to see your pride, right? We wouldn't be where we are. Um, so, I don't know what if that answer. Climate. Sorry. Anything about climate change? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, listen. Don't don't get me started on on because I could extrapolate that from from the sheer themes of Lear, right? We're talking about homelessness, right? We're talking about mental illness. I, I mean, massive storm. Massive storm. Uh, yes. So so it, it is climate there, change, which plan. is which is something that right. is, um, right. I think, goes to certain people's arguments to be like, there's not one person who could have been this in touch with everything, right? And I think that gives them ammunition to sort of take pot shots at the genius. But as we've all you know, said, it's pretty indisputable. I mean, Shakespeare is so, um, I don't know, when I read it, it just makes me think about, you know, people have always been people, and we've always been sort of petty in the same ways, and it's just so, I mean, not just that, also, you know, noble in these ways, and, um, you know, the same violence and lechery and greed, and, um, but also hope, and, you know, like, genuine longing for connection and romance um, has always been there, and I um when I was an undergrad, I stage managed for a friend who did her senior project on Shakespeare, and what she would do is she would read chunks of monologues from different plays and then like interspersed between them would be like this is how this relates to my life as a 21 year old girl living in Wisconsin 
And it did, like it all made sense, it all tracked, it all encapsulated like what she was feeling at that time. And that was a huge, um, that was a big realization for me in that moment, being like, you know, oh, you know, this work still just does really speak to each of us where we are at at this time. I just think of another instance of displaced someone meaning yeah. something to someone. There's a great Soviet production film of King Lear, Kazintsev, mm -hmm. um, that pivots around the scene that you were talking about on the heath uh, when Lear is exposed to the elements. Uh, and he says, take physic, pomp, expose thyself to feel what wretches feel, that thou mayst shake the superflux, all of this, you know, all of your riches, all of your wealth, shake the superflux to them and show the heavens more just. Um, and uh, for, a, for a communist reader of that play, you know, that's, that's the lesson. So for a communist reader, the, key, the emphasized word would be show, that the heavens aren't just, but the shaking of the superflux is the justice. <laughs> you know, it's show. I mean, you may, you know, and, pretend that and that's the they are. And the but, imperative. Yeah. And, and then, you know, but it's also because Shakespeare is, is no ideologue. He's not a communist any more than he's a Catholic or a Protestant. What happens to that resolve? How Lear comes to that, the desperation under which he can have that insight, and then the way it sort of has dribbled away by the end is among the, the play's heartbreaks. But that, and then that line is echoed by Gloucester's line, right? I mean, the, you have two moments in Lear where someone says, people who have too much should give some of it away to people who have too little. You think, what a remarkable, ethical, social, and, and it's almost nobody in the 16th century who thinks like that. I mean, you know, even uh, Thomas Moore can talk about the common wealth, but what he knows is that wealth is not held in common mm -hmm. in any way at all. I mean, it, it is a remarkable social imagination. I mean, and I think, uh, and psychological imagination, moral imagination, and that is why we care. I don't, you know, I, there's not a body of work that's better, mm -hmm. that's richer. So Milton, who is always ambivalent about Shakespeare, <laughs> actually says in that preface to Samson Agonistes, he, he's talking about the classical tragedians who you've done, and he says um, that they, they're unequaled uh, yet. You know, he, he doesn't include Shakespeare as their <laughs> equal. But that's Milton. May I just say, building on what Carl was saying, and everybody else actually, um, thinking about Lear or any of the other tragedies might fit, um, what I think is, is sort of most current now is, uh, is, is Shakespeare always puts us on our guard against, you know, the sort of the ways in which we narrativize ourselves or our feelings or anything like that. I mean, Lear doesn't see what's going on in front of him with Cordelia because essentially he's having a narratives drop and so he's imagined himself as a, as a maligned father. And so he just shuts down and stops paying attention. And that's obviously bad for him. But, you know, one can easily extrapolate that out and say these sort of the, the way in which, you know, in a sense, our feelings play us false when we turn them into stories. He's teaching us. Yeah, it has consequences, not just for, you know, our own well-being, but, you know, big ones for politics and for society at large. And I think, you know, that... that that's probably always going to be current, but it, it certainly it certainly feels to me um, like it said an awful lot to the situation in which we find ourselves in, you know, North America and Europe right now, <laughs> yes. possibly elsewhere. Should we open it up to questions? Yes, please feel free to come up and ask questions.
Okay, is this on? Hmm. Oh, okay. Um, I wanted to express my gratitude and birthday wishes to Shakespeare. <laughs> Whether he I is, didn't bake cupcakes, I'm really sorry. <laughs> Whether he is the higher power or not. Um, but on the front of our program today, um, there's a quote from the Atlantic magazine that uh, the perception that all of Shakespeare's plays are about race. And I yes. wanted to ask Sophie, Carl, all of you, um, your thoughts about that. Here's the article. I don't know if you want to read it now, <laughs> but, um, but th there are people who find, who find um, commentary on race in I, you can you can rationalize anything, <laughs> but yes. So I'm not going to turn to call to start with, mm -hmm. uh, but there's a way in which they they are not not about race, right? Because you you have you, you 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 can't play Othello at the moment it's played, except in blackface. I mean, the, the, you know, it's racialized in a practical, material way. Merchant of Venice, Morocco says, mislike not me for my complexion. Now, you could say, say that complexion might not simply mean that, but it, it also means that at any moment. So they, they certainly are about race. Are they only about race? Of course not. But... Race was so, I, I grew up, I, I'm the oldest person in this group, I'm not sure. <laughs> Congratulations and thank you. Um, I grew up in a world where race wasn't obligatory in the conversation, and it is now in the academy, and that's, that's for clear, in the theater too. Um, but I don't know anybody, I was a 60s kid, I don't know anybody who ever taught a fellow who didn't say, as people did say in the 50s and the 40s, Othello is every man. No, nobody said that from 1960 on. There's the, the Ridley Julius Caesar edition where he talks about taking a Pullman car from New York to Chicago and the noble head of the Pullman porter. And just like, you know, the, that much of the world has changed. Shakespeare is about race in the way he's about a lot of things. He's about women on a stage that has to cross-dress to play them. He cross-dress kings, right? I mean, that, that, it was illegal to imagine the death of a king. That's the definition of treason in England. And yet he writes plays in which you imagine the death of kings. That's what you do. Um, you know, I, I, that otherness of the play, Merchant of Venice, Othello are obvious examples, but they're all over the place, Book of Sir Thomas More, those alien conversations. So, you know, I, I think it, at the moment, because this had been sort of backburnered, I guess, for so long, there's been this explosion of interest, but it's always been there, and it was there from the beginning. I mean, I guess that would be my point. They, can't, they cannot not be about race. Okay. Any other thoughts on that? I suppose just that it's it's a, he's passionately interested in injustice um, yes. and oppression uh, of all of all kinds, um, 
And so there's not only, I think, a very sort of real uh, thrum of interest in race as a category uh, through, all the, through all the writing, it's, it's ideologically differently configured than how we encounter it, but it's there. Um, there's also, and I think this is sort of part of what makes these plays so amenable, there's sort of an infinite fund of analogy um, to the conditions of uh, racial identity of a lot of different kinds. I think about Fred Moten writing on, on um, blackness as a condition to which people who are identified as black have special but not exclusive access. Mm. Um, and that, that feels like an auspice under which to think and to approach the force of race in Shakespeare. Yeah, the only thing I would add, and thanks for that question, um, I, having not read the article, so I might, you know, stray a little bit, um, I think it definitely, it, it is front and center, um, but it's easy to get caught uh, where we are in our moment in time right now. I think it, it, it might have a, a, a deeper connotation, right, because where we are, uh, the, the conversation is more sensitive now about, you know, you can't do, uh, as a, a producer, you, we, we can't do Taming of the Shrew, right? That's completely off limits to even go down that Pandora's box because of what some of the themes are, uh, I think is sort of also present when we talk about race, right? We're at a global reckoning around race and equity and inclusion. So I think that might be a more sensitive topic now than in Shakespeare's time where it was dramatic and it's always going to be the other is always more mysterious, always more, we don't know, and, I, and these folks up here would tell me more about it, but a lot of people didn't travel in Shakespeare's time, right? So we didn't have commerce and uh, exchange of ideas. So to really think about somebody from over there is a, is a wealth of sort of like imagination. Oh, oh. And so our introduction to them, a la Shakespeare, uh, is, is different than we, we have now. So I, that, that's the only thing I could add to it without having read the, uh, read the original article. But um, here again, just growing up when I did, hearing about Ira Aldridge, right, going through Europe as the first black actor to really gain, maintain a, 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 a status doing it, but then also hearing what Patrick Stewart did at you know uh, the Shakespeare Theater where they did the reverse of Othello, right? So Patrick Stewart played Othello, and I believe, oh, I can't think of the actor who played Iago, but they reversed the roles to see what that did. To me as an audience member, I'm interested in that. It might not be successful, right? But I understand here again, if it's dramaturgically sound, and that's the big thing, are we doing it arbitrarily? Or is there something that someone is really trying to tease out through this massive reorganization to me is worth checking out? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. I mean... Oh, don't you come stand here. Yes. You can come stand here. Thank you. I think Sophie wants to say oh, something no, first. I was just going to say Please. that was an interesting point about um, just like the recontextualization of a lot of his work in, in you know, this era when we are being more critical and more, um, I don't know, paying more attention to these things, especially around, um, 
don't know, like issues of consent in Shakespeare is such a wild rabbit hole to go down. I mean, just this idea, you know, like, we're going to end this play by you um, tricking this man into impregnating you, and everyone's, like, happy about it. And he's like, yeah, you know, like, good job. Like, whoa, you know, so much of this is so different now, um, and I think it's worth exploring. And, yeah, as long as we're, like, careful with it, I guess, in the right ways. Thank you. I guess I found myself um, becoming interested in the question of is Shakespeare Shakespeare, but I think as you think about it more, it just makes sense that he had to be the real person. I think there are some <laughs> mysteries surrounding it that, um, you know, the royalist thing I think doesn't make sense. I'm not sure that there were very many aristocrats that even wrote at that with that ability in many cases. Um, I think some of the mystery around it, though, is that having gone to Stratford-upon-Avon as a tourist, they dug up his grave and they couldn't find him. <laughs> you know, and you think, well, they found Richard III, but they couldn't find Shakespeare, um, and I guess in a parking lot. But I think part of it for me is thinking about um, when I was in college, I saw, you know, some, someone had written out, William, shake a spear. And I thought, okay, that seems almost like a pseudonym to me. That was the first time I thought of it because I thought you have William the Conqueror, there are a lot of royals that came out of this Norman you know, conquest and really a lot of his plays are about shaking a spear over England. So that may have been his cleverness. Um, but then I just thought, you know, maybe it, it is him. I think the question I'm going to ask though is different because I've kind of moved on from that. And then I started thinking, I think he was gay. <laughs> so that is probably my question. Like, and I think it matters to me in the sense of, is it a pseudonym? What was he really like? Because I think that sort of changes your view. You know, if Shakespeare was a pseudonym and was a gay, you know, maybe a woman, as we have many people in literature who are female, or if he was gay, it might have changed sort of how these love sonnets are interpreted and things like that. Anyway, I think that's my question just, you know, regarding uh, was he gay? I don't know if it matters, but anyway. <laughs> Shall I have a go? <laughs> 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 um, but we don't know whether he was gay is, of course, the first point, but he was certainly familiar with what one might euphemistically call the dynamics of homoerotic desire, uh, um, and wrote about them very well. Um, and I mean, at some level, that's not that unusual, and the same is true of um, many other many other poets. I'm um, thinking of the of the sort of first half of the sonnets here mainly, uh, um, but one could also, I suppose, turn to the Merchant of Venice or something like that for for perfectly interesting accounts of, of uh, um, um, same-sex desire, but I mean, we just don't know, and I, and I sort of, I don't want to sound like I'm being kind of dismissive, because um, that's an interesting question, but it's, it's less interesting to me than the, the way in which um, he actually goes about, uh, um, um, you know, depicting um, homosexual, homoerotic desire in, in the novels, the novels, um, the sonnets, and to some extent um, the plays, um, and, you know, whether he kissed a boy, I mean, both. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, a couple of things. Uh, I have a question related to something Jeff talked about before, but just want to mention, when, in the discussion of race, I agree with what David was saying, that it's present 
throughout the plays, not only in Merchant and Othello, but Caliban, references to Indians from far away, you know, in many, many senses, e even to the sense, uh, um, uh, I, I was going to make a glib comment that, you know, he's about the race to the top and the race to the bottom uh, in many ways, too. And, and speaking of bottom, um, <laughs> you know, uh, the end of Midsummer has a bit uh, where Puck, uh, was it Oberon, who says, we hope that your children are not born with any deformity, you know. What? You know, that's a whole interesting subject unto itself. Um, what I wanted to, 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 to ask uh, Jeff, um, um, I saw Andre do uh, King Lear, by the way. He's an old friend, and he was so brilliant. But Lear, and, and your comment about Othello, where you had to gloss those lines, I'm just curious from all of you, um, what's so astonishing to me at times is how he can write the thought process, not just the thought process from rhetoric, you know, of persuasion and all that he learned from that, but the internal thought process where your mind is, like Leontes and Winters tell, you know, there are various examples, and I'm just wondering uh, examples that come to your mind where the thought process is so dense, and yet he's able to fit that density and complexity into something iambically pentrometrical, <laughs> you know, somehow or other. And, uh, you know, it's those, I, I just wondered if any passages or sections or characters come to your minds in that regard, because it's just, I think that's just a source of astonishing genius. It's not something you just overhear hearing somebody talk. you got to get inside the, the mind and the process of thinking. Anyway. Thank you. Yeah, there are so many, so many registers in which you could answer that, I think. Um, but it is, uh, I think, a, a, a robust cliche of response to Shakespeare, an important one uh, that's often identified with Harold Bloom, that he, he writes characters who are listening to themselves speak and are surprised by what they hear themselves say. And it goes a little bit to Roger, what Roger was saying about the relationship between the all-at-onceness of pictorial art and, and the sort of serial and, and time-bound character of dramatic performance and, and writing. It's really happening in time for Shakespeare, even in the sonnets that, that time of year thou mayst in me behold, when yellow leaves or none or few do hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold. And it's that, it's that when yellow leaves or, or none you know, the speaker is precipitated into a despair that's further, right. it's darker than he meant to right. be. It's a and process. Yeah, and so he corrects that at the end of the line to few, and you're hearing him right. thinking. Uh, Leo's observation and question is a good one. That's um, why he's a good teacher. Um, but th th those kind of examples, but also I, I was thinking of coming to the Psychoanalytic Institute, thinking about Freudian slips. You know, there are at least two. Um, you know, Hamlet starts with the rugged Pyrrhus, the Hyrcanian beast. No, not so. He begins with Pyrrhus, but I got that wrong. And you wonder, what, where did Hyrcanian beast come from? Um, which you, you know, lots of interesting answers to. And the other is the, the Willow Song, right, where Desmond is singing. She sings, his scorn I approve. And then, oh, no, that's, that's not it. You know, something has bubbled up from somewhere, 
And he, he does. He thinks about thinking. I mean, he understands the complexity of the way a sentence, sentence gets generated and what might interrupt it. Uh, and, and it's that thinking about thinking. That, and that is what makes him different, say, than Ben Johnson, who doesn't think about thinking. He thinks about a lot of other things. But that isn't the way his brain works. And, I, you know, his, his observations are good. I don't know whether I have a completely good example of it, but I think the first time he nails it is um, Juliet in, in The Family Tomb, when, mm. when she's sort of trying to sort of pluck her courage up and starts worrying about everything coming to life, and then it sort of collapses into desperate unmetricality for the last three lines. So, I mean, I think, look, you know, chronology is a, is a mugs game um, with Shakespeare because we can never quite be sure when things happened. But I'm going to call that the first time he did it, and it's a skill that he will refine much more when we get to the sort of big-name famous tragedies, more famous tragedies um, and, their, and their soliloquies. But that Juliet on her own, I think, is a great case study in how that gets done for the first time. I mean, one of the things that fascinates me is how active he makes thinking. Like, it, it's interesting to watch on stage because like, yeah. you can see, like, beat by beat each of the decision-making processes as these characters talk themselves into, you know, oftentimes making not great decisions. Um, and that was, that was one of a great strength of his. Um, you know, uh, Macbeth is my, will always be my home base just because that was my entryway in. And I always loved the, you know, like, is this a dagger I see before me? You know, really, you know, you know Lady Mac has talked to him as much as he can. He has to talk himself the rest of the way into it. And I just have always really loved how, you know, captivating it is to watch these characters make this arc of these decisions that will upend their lives. It's very juicy. <laughs> First, I wanted to thank all of you for your time today. This was really awesome. Um, you know, the title of this conversation is Shakespeare Forever, um, which leads me to wonder how you might imagine if Shakespeare had chosen never to be, uh, what uh, that would have looked like if we never had Shakespeare, and how you imagine that deficit, um, those ripples of loss that we might have had. Wow, it hurts. <laughs> I'd be out of a job. All of us. That would be bad. That's a good point. That'd be very bad. Yeah, I think it would be just a lot. Um, I, I hate to go back to this word again, but it'd be a lot less vivid, right? It would be more in that sort of, you know, black and white. You know, we're still able to watch TV. Right, the stories were there before, but I think uh, in this beautiful gumbo that we all live in, the spices added to it. You you just can't, you know. It's it's like having an authentic meal with the true spices rather than the store bought variant. I mean, the store bought variant you'll you'll eat, but it won't be as satisfying without Shakespeare. And then by virtue of that. I'm going to put, put this in context. My friends and I, when, when I was well, a thousand years ago when we wrote with Quills in, in undergraduate, we would always debate Prince or Michael Jackson, right? <laughs> and that would be our big, oh, but, but this would, and my thing was Michael Jackson was always the greatest entertainer, but Prince's influence and spawned so many other things. And I would say Shakespeare's like that. So from Shakespeare, 
people are able to riff and people are able to communicate cross art forms. So when we go back to Duke Ellington and he creates his, you know, Midsummer Suites in response to reading Shakespeare, that's why I just think it would be just a lot less um, flavorful. There's a line in Mansfield Park where somebody says, we all speak Shakespeare. <laughs> Um, and it, it, there is a way in which our sort of emotional, moral vocabularies have been shaped by Shakespeare. I mean, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, we probably wouldn't be all that different, but we'd be less good at being us. <laughs> and, and gumbo feels like a really good, you good word. You keep going back to food. It's it's all, all your, <laughs> started with a table. <laughs> but it's, it's such a mix, mix. And, you know, one of the things that I think Shakespeare gave us is a, a, a tremendous impurity, um, uh, high, high and low uh, sort of religious ritual and stage play and popular culture and aristocratic ceremony. Um, and I mean, just to think sort of narrowly about European culture for a couple or three centuries after that, uh, you know, it might have been a much more neoclassical affair, um, a much more sort of decorous and rule-bound affair if, if there hadn't been this. Which, which gets back to the Seven Years' War. I mean, yeah. in that weird way, I mean, you, you read what Voltaire says about Shakespeare, and it's exactly that, that Aristotelian world of Moliere play is what the rest of the world was doing. I mean, I think that's exactly right. And that's what produced the reaction. I mean, it's really interesting to read French criticism of Shakespeare at that period. And it's exactly the gumbo quality. I mean, you, you guys got there ahead of me. I was going to say, sort of half tongue-in-cheek, that we don't have to wonder. We can just look at France to find out what happens <laughs> when, when there is, or French literature, which isn't so bad, let's face it. Uh, um, but, yeah, it does. Um, they, 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 you know, French drama certainly of the, of the long 18th century lacks a very great deal of that which um, we can find in Shakespeare. Um, so, so yeah, no, we would just endorsing all of that basically. Okay. I, I went uh, to a British English boarding school after being in a French school, and when we were in the French school. Uh, we, you know, studied uh, Moliere, Racine, Corneille, uh, Victor Hugo. And uh, then I go to England, and we have a class uh, three days a week, and the class is called the English class. And every day the teacher walks in, who for me at that time was very old, and he kind of steps in and starts by saying, Shakespeare, please. And for a year we had Shakespeare, please. And I said, uh, after the first two, three months, I said, don't this English have any other writers? <laughs> <laughs> A couple. <laughs> any other questions? Well, thank you all. Yes. <laughs> Some of the conversation, of course, reminds me of Suzanne Langer saying that um, the, the artist has some notion of the life of feeling, and that's what's evoked in, 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 in the work of art. My question is, I, and I'm not sure if I read this in the Atlantic article or somewhere else, but they were talking about, and this is more of a, 
maybe a specific Hamlet question. They were saying that of the tragedies, Hamlet is the one where the explanation of who he is is not on the table of the narrative. It is not explained. It's the only one. And by doing so, it thrusts the audience member into the same kind of quandary of indecision that Hamlet is experiencing. Uh, and, it, and somehow it's this brilliant manipulation that draws the audience <laughs> into the play of also being able to make a decision. Is this reasonable the way he is? Is it not reasonable? Who is this guy, really? Because it's never explained. And I wonder what you guys feel about that. And are there other instances of that in other plays where we're grabbed into the play as almost like actors in the play? Yeah. Yes. I mean, I think I think the opening the opening scene of Hamlet is brilliant. I mean, the opening lines. I mean, who's there? Nay, stand and unfold yourself. You know, it's pitch black. We're on the battlements of some castle on the shore of the Baltic. No one knows what's going on. And you know, you're sort of thirty lines in, and you've even worked out who's asking the question and who's answering it. Uh, um, and it's it's just you know such a bold and extraordinary opening because you in the audience, whether you are. You know, um, you know, one of the sort of people who might have seen the early Hamlet play, because Shakespeare adapted one, we're almost certain, um, or whether you're coming to it fresh. You just don't know what's going on. You don't know. And then, yes, we, we, the prince eventually turns up, and we eventually learn that he's called Hamlet, and we eventually get some of the backstory. But, you know, we're sort of way into the sort of beginning of scene two before we've even sort of got the dramatis personae relatively clear um, in our head. And this is one of Shakespeare's favorite tricks. He starts Macbeth off that way. Othello's a better example. We don't learn Othello's name until the Duke speaks it. Uh, um, you know, a good sort of 10, 15 minutes into the action of where Iago has been kind of beginning to weave his deeply unpleasant spell. Uh, um, and yeah, we are, we are left wondering. And that, that's sort of the, the, the threat of indeterminacy, the threat of potentially over-interpreting is, I think, something Shakespeare... I mean, it sounds like I'm being too clever for my own good, but some, Shakespeare's trying to dramatise that, that sort of... The, the, the ease and the difficulty with which we can figure out what's going on in a scene. He never, he never spells it out in the way that Ben it Johnson makes us does. anxious. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And that's the world they all live in as well is sort of the point, I think. Uh, um, and it's sort of, you know, clarity is, um, certainty is, is something you can only fake, essentially. <laughs> but that, that opening yeah. of Hamlet's obvious, yeah. but they, as you say, yeah. they all yeah. open it. Lear opens with that strange yeah. conversation, yeah. Yeah. and then in Lear the line is, who is it who can tell me who I am? You know, Lear's shadow. Um, you know, that, that is, you know, as you were saying, I mean, that's the question. You have to... And your point, I love your little tripartite sense of who's being addressed. Um, and good actors play with that, in that uncertainty. But that, that, who, who are these people? Um, and then finally, it's who the hell are we? But, um. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is the question. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.